I invite you today to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew, if you're not sure where that is, right in the middle, just about, you get through uh, the Old Testament. The first book in the New Testament is Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 2 as we wrap up our series today here on Christmas Day. The culmination of these things is, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ, and as has been our theme throughout We're going to look today at how the birth of Christ requires our worship to him. We've seen Jesus, our majestic God, in in Psalm chapter 8. We've seen Jesus, the fulfillment of God's prophecies in Luke, after the angel appeared to Mary. We've seen Jesus, our redeeming Savior, in Luke chapter 2, through the lives of Simeon and Anna. And today, through 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 the lives and the worship of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2, we see Jesus, the King of kings. Look there with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, lay, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be in your house on Christmas today. We thank you for the joy that we share in Jesus Christ, the hope of eternity that's in him, and the grace that is evident every day in our lives because of that work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray today that Christians here today, you would challenge our hearts. You would draw us closer to yourself. You would work through the the issues of our lives and the sin that we still struggle with that keeps us from being as effective as we could be and keeps us from worshiping you as we should. Convict us of these things. Help us to make them right. Lord, for one who may be here today who hears this message, who has not come to you, the relationship with Jesus Christ, to know you as Lord and Savior, we ask today that you would work in their heart. You would draw them to yourself. You would show them the peace that comes through knowing you and you alone. We ask that over the next few minutes, you'd meet with us here. You'd speak to us through your word. Help us to walk out of this place different than we've come in today because we have heard your truth proclaimed and applied to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. your name we pray. Amen. I asked you this morning how many of you had already opened your Christmas presents, and I think many, most, if not all of us in here, we, we already plowed through most of that in our homes, but because 
and I, and I thought about that yesterday, that, that that's probably one of, if not the most widely accepted Christmas tradition is this, this exchanging and this giving of gifts to other people. And you know that, that as soon as Thanksgiving rolls around, or honestly, as soon as, as November rolls around, the, the TVs are full of commercials about what you're supposed to buy this person or that person or, or the sales that are here so you can make sure you have everything you need for your friends and your family. And then these presents begin to pile up under the Christmas trees in the home. Or, uh, and, and on or around Christmas morning, a lot of these, or most of all of these packages are exchanged to the delight of many. Or if you're like my two-year-old daughter who opened half her presents throughout the last couple of weeks, we would hand her a present all rewrapped this morning and she would say, oh, the dinosaur, oh, the blanket, before she even opened it, two years old. So I didn't think she'd remember, but she did, okay? Over 2,000 years ago, the greatest gift that has ever been given arrived on this earth. The Son of God in human form, Jesus Christ. He came in fulfillment of God's prophecies as the Lamb of God. But Jesus isn't just a lamb, he is also the King of kings. And as such, he is due our reverence and our praise. And one of the first recorded instances we have in the life of Jesus, and, and granted, the, the, the Gospels do not give us an entire life's account of Jesus. That would be impossible to do. But one of the first recorded instances we have here involves the giving of gifts. And probably most, if not all of us here today, have heard the account of these wise men who traveled to see Jesus. So I want us to look at this today and, and talk about what does it mean for us today. Because this account, we must understand, didn't happen on the day of Jesus' birth, or even immediately following that. And many things that have become traditionally associated with this account are, in fact, extrapolations made outside of the Scripture. So let us turn to the pages of Matthew's Gospel and see what he shares with us. And just to help you understand a little bit of the context here, understand going in, Matthew, the human author that was inspired by God to write this, was a disciple of Jesus. He became an apostle. He wrote his gospel primarily to his fellow Jewish countrymen. Throughout Matthew, there is a repeated effort to, made to, to show Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecies given about his coming. And if you want to sum it all up in one statement, Matthew is the gospel of the king. And today, we will look at Jesus, the king of kings, and see that because Jesus is the king of kings, I must give to him the honor and praise he is due with both my trust and my life. If Jesus is the king of kings, and he is, then there is something that's required of us. Because Jesus is the king of kings, we, we are required to respond in an appropriate way. And the way that, that, that we uh, give him the honor and the praise that he is due is through trusting him with our souls, trusting him with our eternal salvation, trusting him with our entire being, and living in a way that honors and glorifies and gives worship and praise to him. That is exactly what God has called us to do. And we see that throughout this account that's given. And we see the different responses that come out in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem through three different groups here in the story. And we'll see them as we go along. But the first thing you see in verses 1 and 2, you see a group of men who are coming seeking the king. We read here that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came 
to Jerusalem. Let's take just a minute, and we're going to talk about some groups as we go through here. The first thing we're going to talk about is this group of wise men. Because Matthew's account of Jesus' life turns us to events that occur sometime after his birth. Now, we're not certain how long after the birth of Jesus, which we read about in Luke 2 this morning, and this account that Matthew records takes place. Now, from the text before us and the subsequent passages throughout Matthew chapter 2, it would seem to be that this would be anywhere from around a few months following Jesus' birth to sometime around two years, probably just a little short of two years after his birth, somewhere in that range. What we do know is that during this time, There were wise men from the east who come looking for Jesus. And over the years, traditions and assumptions have been made about these wise men. So I want to take a minute and establish what we know and do not know about these men before we jump into the quest that's before them. So the Greek word here behind our text translation of wise men, another way to translate that word is magi. Now that title, magi, has become associated over the years with magic and magicians, but, but don't think about, these weren't guys with little top hats and tuxedos, okay, coming to, to, to see baby Jesus. Uh, no, that word uh, is, talks about a group of men who were skilled in astronomy and specifically in astrology as well as other sciences and, and, and things of their time. This group was associated, if you go back in history, was, was heavily associated with both the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires, if you're familiar with those things, especially towards the latter part of the nation of Israel's Old Testament history when they went into, um, uh, when they, when they went into exile. In fact, it is quite possible that this group was closely associated with the Babylonian empire when Daniel was there. And this group became very powerful through their vast knowledge of science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult. And, and because of that, they were these, these men became very, uh, very powerful in the political and religious influence that they wielded. So much so that they a lot of times had influence over who was king in certain areas. Sometimes they're referred to as kingmakers. And since they were so active... In the time of Daniel and beyond, many believe that this group was influenced by Daniel when he was there in Babylon. Daniel was held in high regard in his day and age by those magi, by those wise men and others of his time. Perhaps you remember in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream and it troubles him. And he calls for the magicians, he calls for the wise men. This is what it's talking about. It calls for men like this to come and interpret his dream. And if you go back and read that passage, you'll find out exactly what happens there. But, but what happens is that, that Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, it was God that was working through Daniel. But then it seems that, that, oh, Daniel, that through Daniel, the Magi had learned of God's plans and God's purposes. That he had promised a king to reign upon David's throne. And it seems that over the years, this group of magi, these people, had been, uh, they had remembered this prophecy. Because when they see a star, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, what they, what they see, drawing them to, to Israel, this is what they come looking for. They come looking for a king. They come from the Orient, arriving in Jerusalem, seeking him. Another thing that's interesting is we don't know how many of these magi came looking for this king. Over the years, the number has been what? 
Three, because you, know, you all know the song, right? We, three kings, right? Okay. And, and commonly that number is drawn out because of the number of gifts in the scripture. But, but that doesn't necessitate there are only three guys. Actually, it's quite possible there were a lot more than three guys. And more than that, because of their influence and because of their power and because of the things that, that, that they stood for, it's actually quite possible they also traveled with a great contingent of other people, soldiers and those sorts of things. So this isn't just a, a group of traveling nomads going through an area. This, this is a revered group with great influence of people coming into Jerusalem. And they come on a quest that is surprisingly unfulfilled when they arrive. You read in verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. As astronomers, and particularly astrologers, they had observed a phenomenon that called for their attention. And though these men were pagan, they still sought God's promised king, and God graciously revealed this to them. These men had observed a heavenly phenomenon revealing the birth of God's promised king from their position in the east. And they had determined that this star that they had seen was over the land of Israel. Now, if you've been looking for a king and you've been looking uh, for, for, for this prophecy to be fulfilled and a star appears over that nation and you don't really know where to go, where do you go? You go to the capital city, which in this case is Jerusalem. And they arrive in Jerusalem expecting to find people celebrating, people rejoicing. Well, why do you say that? It doesn't say that here. Well, understand here in verse 2, this word, saying, whereas he has been born king of the Jews. The the way that's worded in Greek, it's the idea of they were asking repeatedly over and over again, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? The idea here is they come expecting that they're going to find him. Because, hey, if a king's been born, that's a big deal. If prophecy's prophecy's been fulfilled, that's a big deal. But they come to Jerusalem, and they don't find him. More than that, they don't find anybody who knows about him. And so they begin asking around over and over again, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This must have been a shocking thing to these men. Now, it's interesting, if you read Roman history, and you read Roman historians and Jewish historians during this time, there was an expectation in Israel that that there would be a ruler coming out of Israel soon. Because the time was perfect, the time was right for the Messiah to come as God had designed it. But that coming of Jesus had not been widely recognized. But as God has promised He doesn't hide himself from those who truly wish to know him and truly wish to see him. To the one who seeks him, God reveals himself. Understand the majority of people in Jesus' day and the majority of people in our day do not truly wish to see Jesus. They do not truly wish to know him. They like the idea of Jesus, the things that he may stand for. They like the idea of a heaven, but they don't truly wish to know him as Lord and Savior, as the King. Knowing Jesus is what is needed, though, to gain new and eternal life. And as these men begin to make their inquiries, we meet the second and third groups of this account as they search out the answers. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So let's talk here for just a minute about the second person. Uh, We had the wise men. Now we have the second person that appears in our story. His name is Herod, or he's commonly referred to as Herod the Great. 
We were told here in the beginning who was reigning then in Israel at this time. And we're told in verse 3 that, that he's troubled. This is Herod the king or Herod the great. Herod, if you go back and read history, had all the makings of a dictator. He, ruled, he began his rule in Israel around the year 37 B.C. Understand, Herod was not Jewish, but he instead was Idumean or of Edomite descent. If you know your Jewish history, the Edomites descend from Esau. And there's a great uh, rift between these two groups of people. There's an enmity here. And so therefore, technically, this makes Herod a usurper of the throne of Israel. During his time, Herod reigned and he did great things in Israel. He began a reconstruction project of the temple. Perhaps you heard of a place called Masada. It's an incredible fortress uh, where, where Jewish, some, some Jewish um, soldiers and others held out later on in the Roman Empire. Herod's the one who built Masada. But he also did terrible things. He was an extremely jealous and suspicious ruler. Just a few of the things that he did among these cruel and merciless acts, he drowned his wife's brother, who was the high priest, and then he drowned his own wife. He murdered his mother-in-law, and he murdered several of his own sons because of his jealousy and envy. In fact, Caesar Augustus, the Caesar over the Roman Empire, the ruler of the Roman Empire at this time, he is said to have uttered this phrase, that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And, and you, don't, you and I don't quite understand that because in Greek, those two words sound the same, pig and son. And the reason was because Herod was an evil, awful person. Herod also made moves against the Parthian Empire for Rome in order to gain control of, empire, of Israel. And this is significant to note because the Parthian Empire was an empire that was connected with the Magi. So therefore, the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem looking for a king from these guys who come from somewhere else who are associated with a different empire, with all these questions, they're very troubling to Herod. When Herod hears what these men are asking, it's, the text says it troubled him. That word that you have there in your, in your Bible as troubled means to be in turmoil or to be terrified. First, he was troubled by the fact that he was, they were looking for one who is called the king of the Jews. Now, imagine who Herod is, an evil, awful ruler, a usurper of the throne of Israel. And now someone, these groups of men, are, this, this group of men are coming in looking for one who is called the king of the Jews, and they're not looking for him. They're looking for somebody else. He's also troubled, likely, by who these men are. They're from the east, most likely associated with the Parthian Empire. He may fear an attack against his kingdom by that empire. And so he's troubled by what he hears. Now, I just gave you a minute ago a snippet of what Herod was like, and there's a lot more things you can read about Herod and what he's done. But now you may understand the text in verse 3, where it says that Herod was troubled, and if Herod is troubled, who else is troubled? All Jerusalem with him. Are they troubled because of the wise men? Well, maybe, but more likely they're troubled because Herod is troubled, and when Herod gets troubled, he does bad things. And indeed, at the, later on in this chapter, he's going to go on and massacre young children in the city of Bethlehem because of this. So Herod, now wishing to uncover more of what these men are talking about, turns to a third group that's important to note, that is the religious leaders of Israel. It says in verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, having heard the inquiries of these men and being troubled in his heart and soul, gathers the religious hierarchy of Israel. He gathers the chief priests and the scribes, we're told. Now, what, what these groups are is you have first the priests that oversaw the worship of God. Now, in the Old Testament, God had clearly laid out for his people how the, the, the chief, the, the, the head priest, the high priest was to be chosen and how long he was to serve. But by the time of Jesus, God's way of selecting the high priest and his worship, the way he led the worship, was not being followed. In fact, the spiritual decay of Israel was most evident in the spiritual leadership of Israel. Those who should have been watching and waiting, expecting the arrival of the Messiah, were not. And then along with these chief priests in charge of these various things were the scribes. These were the experts of God's law. And these groups, these groups are made up of two smaller groups, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and what these groups represent is they represented two approaches to God's law, a very liberal approach and a very conservative approach. They represent two different ways of applying God's law, applying it very minutely or applying it very broadly. But, but in the end, both of these groups have something in common. This group as a whole, these religious leaders, are very indifferent to the things of God. Instead, they sought to increase their own influence and power through the law of God. And we see that here. We see how indifferent they are. Because here comes Herod seeking knowledge from them. He wished to know where the Christ would be born. And it is interesting that Herod displays here some, some kind of superficial knowledge of Scripture because he inquires about the Christ, about the Messiah of Israel. He's at least familiar with the terms of expectation. And it's here that that Herod begins to ascertain and determine the facts. The religious leaders give him the answer that he seeks. They go to the Old Testament. Specifically here is a quotation from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem is the city from which the Messiah has been promised to come. Bethlehem was then, as it is today, a small city about five to six miles south of Jerusalem. It is in the hill country of Judea, a very fertile area. It was once a city called Ephrathah in the Old Testament and is sometimes referred to by that name. The name of Ephrathah was changed when Joshua led the conquest of Canaan. It was renamed to Bethlehem. Literally, it means house of bread. And by the time of Jesus, Bethlehem has actually, though it's a small city, has a great reputation. And you know why Bethlehem has an incredible reputation? Because who is from Bethlehem? Well, not Jesus. I mean, he is now, but before then. David. David is the greatest king Israel ever had. The greatest human king. He is a king who is called a man after God's own heart. And so when people think of Bethlehem, sure, they think of a small city, but they think of the city of David. That's where David is from. That's where David hailed from. That's where he was born. That's where God called him. That's where God raised him out of. God chose this little town to be the center of his miraculous provision of the Messiah. And God has fulfilled his promise to David as the Messiah was born from his lineage. 
The religious leaders of Herod's day knew the text, but they did not know the God who gave that text. They simply looked at Herod and said, yeah, this is what the scriptures say. But they have not connected the dots. Here are these guys looking for the Messiah, saying they've seen it. And, well, this is what's supposed to happen. They don't seem to grasp the enormity of what's being said. That a ruler was promised to come from Bethlehem. And it wasn't just a dictator. He would have the tenderness of a shepherd. He would exercise sovereign dominance over God's people. The Magi stand in Herod's presence and the presence of others declaring that this ruler has been born. And it's an amazing thing that here in Matthew, I told you earlier, Matthew's primary audience is his Jewish countrymen to show them that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of the Jews. He's the one that God promised to be the ruler. But in the book of Matthew, the very first people who ever recognize Jesus as the king are not Jews. They are Gentiles. They are these wise men. You know why? Because Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all men. He calls all men unto himself. And we see that through these men here. And just as worried as Herod is, that's how unbothered the religious leaders are. They have had the incredible privilege of God's revelation but they did nothing with it except exalt themselves. The Gentile Magi had very little knowledge of God, yet were more responsive to his work. And now Herod begins to move his own agenda forward. In verse 7, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. He has begun to calculate the threat against himself. And he wants to make sure that that he is unchallenged for the throne of Israel. And so, he secretly discusses the appearance of the star with the Magi. He wants to establish a timeline of events that later he may execute plans. And having done this, he, he lies to the Magi. He commands them, hey, return here under the guise that I'm going to come and worship the child. We know from reading the text later on he wants to do no such thing, but instead wishes to enlist the help of these men so that he can make sure he gets what he wants. He will use every chance he has to oppose God in God's ways. And having done this, the Magi prepare to set off, but now they know they're heading, that they need to go to Bethlehem, but where do they need to go specifically? And it's here we see God's miraculous work and their heartfelt worship, and we see their subjection to Jesus. In verse 9, we see the divine direction. When they had heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Undoubtedly, these men are about to head for Bethlehem, but where will they go? It's hard to discern here from the text. But it seems that that, that star, I mean, it hasn't, hasn't given them any further direction. Perhaps even it's, it's disappeared. And now it has reappeared to give them the direction where they need to go. And, and it's here again, by the way, that, that over the years, many people have come up with 
all kinds of clever ideas to describe, well, what could the star be? It could be this phenomenon or this or that or the other thing. I mean, obviously, it's something out of the ordinary because these men recognized it as so. Also, though, it, it was something that revealed to them things very specifically, showing them where they should go because it indicated exactly where Jesus was. So the question is, I mean, how could this be? Well, certainly... God could make a new star for this purpose that would appear and be discerned by them. This also could have been the presence of God himself leading him as he led the Israelites back in Exodus when they left the land of Egypt. If you remember back in that time when God led his people through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, uh, when God did that, specifically at the Red Sea, that cloud that was, a guiding, that was guidance to the Israelites was also that which was which cast darkness on the Egyptians as they sought to overtake the Israelites there at the Red Sea. And as I read this text and studied these things, I I believe that this was God's Shekinah glory leading them specifically to his son. And to them, and to you and me, it would look like a a star. I could be wrong on that. You know, we don't know exactly what happened, but we know this. God did lead them directly. Whatever the case, these men are the recipients of the amazing grace of God's direction. As such, in verse 10, they are rightfully excited. In fact, look at verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they what? Rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Go back to the original text in Greek. And you'll find here a bunch of superlatives just piled up one on top of the other because there's no way to communicate how excited these guys were. That's exactly what the idea here is. These guys are so excited for what God has done. They are so uh, overwhelmed by the grace of God in their lives. That, that, that all that Matthew can say, and we can read in our translation, they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. They were pumped, right? They, they were so thankful for the grace of God. They were so thankful for the direction they had given. They were so excited. They did not look up in the sky and say, oh, there it is again, right? But they were once again being led by God where they needed to go. Worship of Jesus as king should fill us with joy and excitement. You know, if you drag yourself into church or throughout the day and just say, oh, I'm here to worship God. I don't think you know what worship is. When we realize that we're coming to worship the King of Kings, that should fill us with wonder and amazement, adoration and praise. When we live our lives in a way that worships God, it fills us with joy. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in our life, we're just going to say, woo, that was great, right? Because we face hard times. But we can have joy because our God is greater than anything we face. And he is sovereign over these things. These men were filled with joy and praise to God. They showed greater joy than God's own chosen people in this story. And in their joy, they came prepared to worship in verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What we understand here is that Joseph and Mary have relocated in Bethlehem to a home. It is here that God leads the wise men. Again, 
Imagine the scene. I, I talked to you a little bit about this last week. Imagining everything that's happening to Joseph and Mary there in the temple that day. Imagine the scene again. So here is this young family in this home. And this group of magi show up at your house. And they don't just show up, you know, knock on the door. You know, hi, can we interest you in a Kirby vacuum cleaner? You know, that's not what they're doing, okay? They come to worship Jesus. And again, the story gets even more astounding when you realize that that's probably not just three dudes showing up. It's probably this contingent of people showing up at your house. And they don't just come in and say, oh, look, there he is. They come in. The text tells us specifically what they did. And when they had come into the house, they what? They saw the young child and Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped You don't bow down to someone else unless they are your sovereign. They are your king. That's exactly what these men did. This little child in a city, in a little city, who we know from the, from the, um, from the sacrifice that Mary brought in Luke chapter 2, he was born to poor, very humble parents, receives the highest devotion these men can give. They give him honor due only to a king and the king of kings. And, as is appropriate in such worship, they present him with gifts. These gifts are not the worship. These gifts are an element of that worship. The worship takes place in their hearts. The worship takes place in who they are and what they're, what they're recognizing. And then out of that worship, they are giving these gifts to God. And we read here... The gifts they present to Jesus, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They have subjected themselves to him. And understand, especially at a time like this, when you went to see a king, you didn't come empty-handed. You came with a gift. We read that none of these gifts here, none of these are common and run-of-the-mill. Each was expensive or valuable in its own way. They have gold which was long considered the most valuable metal, the symbol of wealth, of power, of prestige, and royalty. Think back in the history of Israel to King Solomon, the king who had it all, the richest king in Israel, and what he did. If you ever read the description of Solomon's kingdom, he filled the nation of Israel with gold. We read of frankincense, which was a costly, beautiful-smelling incense that was used only on special occasions. In fact, frankincense was used in Israel in the worship of God. It was kept in a box there in the temple for the worship of God. And then you have myrrh. Though not as expensive as frankincense, was also very valuable and had a variety of uses, including the preparing of bodies for burial. And over the years, here again in the text, people have given or assign specific meanings to each of these things. And I guess it's possible to say that each of these represents something in Christ's life. But I really think the bigger picture is this, that all of these were appropriate gifts to offer a king. Because again, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the king. These three men recognize Jesus' kingship in offering these things. I said three men, could have been more, right? They gave items of great expense out of hearts of worship and praise. And our worship to God should be likewise. I would argue that worship that requires nothing of us 
isn't true worship. And I'm not just talking about money or things like that, but giving of ourselves and who we are. That is just, otherwise, worship that requires nothing of us is just a matter of convenience. But if we truly worship Jesus, we offer him the best of all that we have. Worship that is based on just giving things by the opposite side of the spectrum isn't true worship. That's just checking off a box of responsibilities. That's why worship has to come from the heart. Worship has to come from from the inner being of who we are. And then, then what begins to flow out of that is us giving to God the best of what we are and who, what we have. True worship involves our entire being and spreads to encompass the giving of our entire lives, including the things that God has blessed us with. And if we view Jesus as the King of kings, that is what we will offer him. And having worshipped Jesus as the king, the Magi now prepare to depart. And here we see the final part of their worship and the divine directive, directive that they receive in verse 12. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. God and his sovereignty knew exactly what Herod planned to do, that he planned to try to kill Jesus. And so, he delays the plans of Herod through divine revelation to these men. And the Magi, having received this revelation, go home a different route. And understand again, if the entourage is as big as it could have been, that's not an easy feat to take all of these people and go home a different direction. But that's what God said. And worship to God listens to God and obeys God. That's what true worship does. Obedience to to God in our lives is just as much worship as anything else. Jesus came as he promised, and he claimed victory over death and hell. And one day he will return to rule and reign for all of eternity because he is the king of kings. He is worthy of our worship. So come, let us adore him. And let us see that because Jesus is the king of kings, I must give to him the honor and praise he is due with both my trust and my life. Jesus, the King of Kings, is deserving of our highest and greatest worship with our lives. Yet, not all will respond to him as the King. Throughout history and our day today, there have been varied responses to Jesus. And they are seen before us in this account. Look at a guy like Herod. Herod was immediately hateful, lashing out against Jesus. He would not recognize the lordship of Jesus in his life and would do everything in his power to oppose him. Following this account... We read that Herod would have all the boys two years and younger in Bethlehem murdered in an attempt to wipe Jesus out. Now Joseph, who was warned of this occurring by God in a dream, took his family to Egypt. Which, by the way, he most likely funded a journey for a poor family through the gifts that the wise men had given. Jesus creates in the past and in many today... In others, oftentimes, a vehement response. You mention Jesus and his work, and you get the door shut in your face. The conversation dies. You may be marginalized or ignored. Because Jesus confronts our sinful selves and calls us to trust in him. And to many, that's not acceptable. And they oppose Jesus. Still others are like the religious leaders of Israel. 
No, they're not violently opposed to Jesus at the outset. However, their indifference and nonchalantness towards God's revelation will lead them down the same path of rejection. The indifference that these men showed in the story ends at the cross when they rejected the, the, the king and nailed him to a cross. An indifference or a seemingly neutrality towards Jesus is rejection of Jesus. And, and in today's culture, in today's culture of, well, that's your truth and this is my truth, this is a very popular thing. Well, that's what you believe. That's your truth. I'm here to tell you if it's truth, it isn't someone else's truth. It's always truth. Either something is true or it's not. Either Jesus is the king or he's not. Either you believe him or you don't. And like the Gentile magi, we are called to faith in God. They heard what the scripture said. Now, it was very limited what they had heard. And they sought the king. God revealed himself to these men, and they responded in true, complete worship. And this is what God calls you to today. As we celebrate this Christmas day, the question you have to ask yourself is, have you given your life to him? Have you committed your faith and your trust to the king of kings? This involves proclaiming him not just your savior, but the Lord of your life. It means giving him not only your faith, but also complete and total access and control of your life. This is true and rightful worship that he is due now and forevermore. Jesus, our majestic God, the fulfillment of God's promises, our redeeming Savior, and the King of kings. He was that then. He is that today. He called to men and women then. He calls to you today. So come, let us adore him. Let us exalt him in our lives as the king of kings and live for him every day. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to change our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his coming, for his sacrifice, for his resurrection, and for new life found in him and him alone. And we ask that today you would work in our hearts. You would draw us to yourself. You would show us our sin. You would lead us to the Savior. And you would have freedom to do these things. Lord, may we as Christians live lives of complete and total worship. May we seek to hold nothing back from you but give you everything you deserve. God, that's not easy. That's not easy when we want to hold justice in our own hands. When we want to lash out, it hurts. When we want to control our lives. When we want to control our time. Our possessions. Whatever it may be. Lord, help us to see that worship is coming to you with open hands. To give you everything we are. May you convict us today. Lord, I I do again pray for one who hears this message today who has never given you complete trust in their lives. Maybe they've made a profession of faith. Maybe they've said some nice things about God. Maybe they thought they believed in God, but as they look at their life, Lord, they don't see true 
trust in you. They don't see change. Lord, convict them today. Draw them to yourself. Show them that you can be their Savior, their God, their King. As we go from this place in a few minutes, may we honor you and glorify you today. In your name we pray. Amen.